0: Romans chapter 2, but I'm going to begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where Paul writing to the church at Corinth a prior, prior to the letter to the Romans, he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, praise the Lord, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a, ma- a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. He who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised By no one, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. We are taught by the Spirit. And I think part of this whole sanctification process is learning as we walk by the Spirit how to spiritually appraise this world and not to naturally appraise this world. How to view the world differently, the way God does. And the way he tells us to or teaches us to by his spirit to see the world truly differently, to think differently and to act differently. As we talked about studying through Acts, that new breed of people born again by the spirit of God and now seeing the world differently and thinking in a different place doesn't make me better. You, it doesn't make you better, but it's a different way of looking at things. Tonight, what I'd like to talk about is how to become a bigot. And it begins with this question. How do you appraise what's around you? What is your standard of approval? You know, if you're having a house appraised, you have someone come out and they approve of your home and give it a certain standard, a a, a certain quality. How do you appraise the world around you? We appraise, we approve of all kinds of things. And a lot of these things very differently. We will uh, approve or disapprove of art, music, literature, food, fashion, sports, ideas, attitudes, even people. We will either approve of them or disapprove of them based on our appraisal. We will give our approval to things boisterously, yes, go Hawks, next year, or we will give our approval silently, go Hawks, next year. We give our approval loudly sometimes, sometimes tacitly by not saying anything, we approve. And so it really caught my attention. When studying through this on Sunday, the Spirit, through Paul, made this statement, verse 32 of chapter 1, Although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. And I shared on Sunday morning, I feel like that's an indictment of so many people who may not live a lifestyle of depravity, but certainly approve of it, either tacitly, quietly, by not saying a word, or openly, because I don't want to offend. I want to live and let live and allow people to do their thing and I'll do my thing and it's all good and we'll just hang out together. Now, Paul, by this point, at the end of chapter 1, is a third of the way into his thesis, as I said, on condemnation. And before he gets to the function of salvation, he lays out three divisions of people. We already talked about the first division, we'll talk about the second two tonight. The first division, I'll just call the atheist. Now I don't mean the atheist in the way we traditionally think of the atheist, that is someone who just doesn't believe in God. I mean the atheist, that is someone who is literally opposed to God. Ah, theos. And the Greek would be opposed to or against, which truly atheism is. It's not disbelief, it's abject rebellion. It's standing against the very existence of God, though I believe the atheist still believes. And whether you say atheist, or you could say amoralist, you could say paganist, you could say heathen, I mean, you could apply all kinds of words, but in the first several verses, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 1, and all the way through the end of chapter 1, Paul describes this this spiral of condemnation for the pagan mindset, for the heathen mindset, the non-believing mindset. Back in verse 18 of chapter 1, remember he said the wrath of God is revealed. That is the anger of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's his thesis statement. And then he begins to describe this downward spiral of condemnation as God gives them over. And if you weren't here on Sunday, you might want to go back and listen because God gave them over three times to three different things. At first, he gave them over to the lusts of the desire of the hearts. So he gave them over to desire, verses 24 and 25, chapter 1. And then to what the Bible calls, what Paul calls degrading passions or or degradation, which is very literally the downgrade of the natural for the unnatural. Manifested, as we talked about, in overt homosexuality. That is not how man and woman were created. And so, homosexual behavior is a downgrade from the original creation, a downgrade from that which is naturally created by God. Paul makes the case very clearly. God gave them over to desire. He gave them over to degradation or the downgrading of the natural. And then finally, that leads to verses 28 through 31, depravity. What he calls the depraved mind. What exactly is depravity? Now get this down. The word, and I mentioned the word Sunday, it's adokimos. It's two Greek words put together. In the same way I said a theos," which is against God, opposed to God, adokimos means unapproved. The depraved mind is the unapproved mind. Now, when I read that, I think, wow, that's not as powerful as depraved. He gave them over to unapproval. Okay. But the more I thought about it, and the more you consider that, dokimos, not adokimos, just dokimos in the Greek, means approved. Adokimos, unapproved. Listen to it this way. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 18. It is not he who commends himself that is approved, dokimos, but he whom the Lord commends. This idea of depravity is the exact opposite of what God would help us to understand and I want us to get this tonight that the highest and best standard of approval is God. He is how we can best appraise all things. Approve of or disapprove of all things. If God approves, we're good. If He disapproves, we better pay attention and ask why. If he approves of someone, then I ought to approve. If he disapproves, I ought to disapprove. If I can align myself with God, then I avoid what Paul very definitely calls depravity, unapproval. Does that make sense? We're going to track this through. Because the indictment continues on from the the amoralist, that is, no morality, the the, atheist, the heathenist, if you will, to secondly, what we would call the moralist. The Moralist, or who I would call Mr. Goodbar. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Just when you thought it was safe to say, Amen, brother, during a sermon, just as we get to the end of chapter 1, and there are some who will be shouting Amen and saying, Yes, preach it. Go after the homosexual. Go after those who are immoral and living that life. Go after the heathen. And then Paul says, Yo, yo, you have no excuse. Moralist, you think you've got it all together, who are you to judge? The moralist is the person who is self-satisfied with his or her own goodness. The, I would never be part of that category mentality. The, I'm better because I'm mentality The one who would never do such blatantly wicked things as Paul describes just a few lines above. Well, let's consider these improper things again. Look at verse 29 of chapter 1. Being filled with all unrighteousness. Anybody ever been unright? Ever been wrong? Filled with wickedness. Greed. Greed. That's a tough one. Because I'll tell you what, there's all kinds of things I don't have that I want. And if you're being honest with yourself, you you might be able to join me in that category. Evil, full of envy, murder. Okay, good, I haven't done that one. Or have I? Jesus says if you even call your brother a fool, you're in danger of the fires of hell. We kill with our words sometimes, don't we? But we'll let that one slide. Strife. Well, <laughs> I've never caused strife in my life. <laughs> Deceit. Malice. They are gossips. They are slanderers. Haters of God. That, literally, that's hateful to God. Insolent. Arrogant. Boastful inventors of evil disobedient to parents without understanding untrustworthy unloving unmerciful and he says although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death they not only do the same but also and this is the kicker also give hearty approval to those who practice them and that should terrify us That one verse in all of Scripture laid out before us should make every Christian stand back and go, wait, what am I approving of silently? What am I sitting back and saying, it's cool, just don't bring it into the sanctuary on a Sunday? What does my silence approve of? How many times have I said, I'll take the blame on this one, it's no big deal. You know, just... Live and let live. Judge not that you not be judged. That's a favorite of those who want to shut you down quick because they know you know the verse. Can't we all just get along? And listen, the tacit approval of sin comes out in two ways. It condemns in two ways. First of all, if I seek the approval of sinful humanity, I become concerned with depravity. Unapproval. If I seek the approval of this world, I become concerned with depravity. That is, I start to look to depraved minds for my approval. I start to go to the world to be approved. And it makes no sense when you think about the fact that the world is filled with unapproval. Those who are not approved by God because of their very choices and lifestyles and behavior, and yet Christians oftentimes will run to the world to seek our approval, and in so doing, I become concerned with depravity. Galatians 1.10 Am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? That's a fair question. Who am I seeking to please? Am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, Paul said, I would not be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Bondservants of Christ do not go out to the world to seek approval. Do not concern themselves with depravity. James, brother of Jesus, said in James 4, verse 4, You adulteresses! Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us? Now, I read that and I think I really don't appreciate being called an adulteress. I don't need you shaking the finger at me, James. Listen. What James is saying, and I think the reason why he says, you adulteresses, is is he's saying the bride needs to keep her eyes on the groom and not be looking at the world. If we're running to the world for for approval in the same way that Israel ran to the nations for their approval, we are committing spiritual adultery. So the title would fit. Am I intent on seeking God's approval or man's approval? you might say, okay, but but what's wrong with the loving approval of another person's lifestyle as long as I don't live it? Hey, not only are you concerned with depravity, but now you are complicit in depravity. Accepting depraved minds by my tacit approval. We've talked about this quite a bit uh, I, I, with, with staff and with some, some friends this week, the, this whole concept of as if I approve of homosexuality knowing that the lifestyle condemns a person, what am I really doing? Am I doing them a favor? Am I doing a person who is living in, in an atheistic, rebellious lifestyle of any kind, am I doing them a favor by keeping my mouth shut and not telling them that there is condemnation for such a decision, for such a lifestyle? Is that really what's best on the eternal scale? Well, I, yeah, but I'm just, I just got to keep it quiet, Then I am complicit in their depravity. The Lord told Ezekiel, said, you're a watchman. I'm going to set you as a watchman on the wall. Which means, if you see danger coming and you call out to the people, then not only will you save them, but you'll save yourselves. However, if you see danger coming and you don't say a word, you are complicit. And I will hold you responsible. And while that was a heavy burden for the prophet, I believe it's a truth for followers of Jesus today. If we keep our mouths shut, we're complicit in depravity. I don't want to stand before God and have to explain why I joined the chain gang paving the highway to hell. Why I was part of the team that made it easier for people to go there. No, I want to make it as hard as possible for someone to end up in hell. And prayerfully, though they might be bitter at me and angry with me, throughout this life, in the world to come, perhaps they might get saved. Or for the world to come, perhaps they might be saved and come up and go, listen, I'm sorry I was such a pain when you were so judgmental, but it turns out you weren't so judgmental after all. I needed to hear that. It's not just giving in to depravity, it is approving of it. But it's also sitting, listen to this now, it's also sitting in hypocritical judgment of depravity. And this is a difficult bridge to walk. So stick with me here, verse 3. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Now, this is a big aha moment for me this week. Some of you may be way out ahead of me on this. But this has become a stumbling block for so many Jesus followers, and that is the fear of being judgmental, right? Right? Judge not that you not be judged. And so we don't want to say a word because we're afraid that we're going to come off as the judgmental person and we sit there and try to work out how do I present the gospel without the condemnation factor? Guess what? Paul didn't. Paul starts with condemnation so that people will understand salvation. Doesn't that make Paul judgmental? How do I do this? How do I navigate this? First of all, understand this. Paul is not talking about believers. Believers. And we need to get that. When he says, every one of you passes judgment, you have no excuse for in that which you judge another. This is verse 1. You condemn yourself. He's not talking about believers in Jesus. He's talking about Mr. Goodbar. Mr. Moralist. He's talking about the good person. See, remember, Paul's laying out a case here. There is the atheist mindset, the the heathenist mindset that is just outwardly rebellious, but there's also the good person in the world who thinks, I'm good enough, I'm fine. I don't need God, I don't need Jesus, because I'm good in and of myself. I'm moral, I'm clean, and I don't do, well, most of the things on that list. I'm a good guy. Believers, we need to understand this is the person who either disdains or endorses the depraved, while assuming that he or she is good enough to get by. We do not, listen, believers in Jesus, followers of Jesus, we do not judge, that is, approve of or disapprove of the world, by our self-righteousness. That's not where my judgment comes from if I am to judge this world. In fact, I must not judge this world by my own self-righteousness. The only righteousness that's in me is from God. And as I told you five times in this letter, Paul will refer to the righteousness of God because it is the righteousness of God that makes me righteous. I am not judging the world based on my self-righteousness. Well, I finally figured it out. And the world has not. So the world is going to hell in a handbasket and I'm just better because I've, I got the answer. I understood it. I did this or that. And Proverbs 16 verse 5 says, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Which means you can be a proud Christian and be an abomination. If your pride is in your own Christianity, in your own ability to follow Jesus, in your own massively wonderful faith, in your own pharisaical righteousness, as in the Pharisees saying, Oh Lord, I thank you that I am not like that man. So if a Christian stands up and says, Lord, I thank you that I'm not sinful like the rest of the world, yeah, now you're in the position of judging by your righteousness. But we are called to judge the world by His standard of righteousness. What Paul's doing here in unveiling this condemnation is he's saying, look, this is the judgment for all people in the world. Based on what? Based on the righteousness of God. Not once does he say based on my righteousness or the righteousness of Paul. Proverbs 16, verse 6 says, By loving kindness and truth, that is grace and truth, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. So here's the deal, listen. By what right, by what standard of approval does Paul write this entire section of condemnation? By the righteousness of God. And again, someone might say, well, isn't it a bit hypocritical for him to lay out all this judgment and then say, if you pass judgment, you condemn yourself. Listen now, you want to know what a bigot is? You want to know how to become a bigot? Hopefully this is going to bring some understanding to all I've been saying so far. A bigot is literally, according to Merriam-Webster, both in the 1800s and now present day, I compared dictionaries. A bigot is a person devoted to his or her own opinions or prejudices. That's a bigot. If I judge the world by myself, it's bigotry. But if I judge the world by speaking the Word of God, that is not bigotry. That is not hate speech. It is the truth spoken in love. Christians fear to say something because we don't want to be judgmental, great, don't judge based on your own character. You judge based on the character of Christ. You speak truth based on the righteousness of God, which is very easy to do. We don't puff ourselves up and go, check me out, if you could only be more like me. Well, that would be bigotry. Originally, bigotry, we apply it to race relations. My skin is white, therefore everyone who's not white like me is not as good as me. Bigotry. And the same thing applies. Everyone who is not as spiritual as me is not as good as me. Bigotry. But if we say, outside of Christ Jesus, by the standard of righteousness in the Bible, homosexuality is wrong, that's not compared to me. That's compared to God's Word. If I say, you know, alcoholism is wrong, drunkenness is wrong, well, that's not compared to me. That's compared to God's Word. Pick the sin. If I say gossiping is wrong, I'm not comparing it to myself. I'm comparing it to what the standard of the Word tells us and we speak the truth in love. Listen to the way Jesus put it. John 12.47 If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge them. That's great. Jesus says, I'm not your judge. I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. But then He says, but he who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one Who judges him, the word. The word which I spoke is what will judge him in the last day. My friends, the moralist is a bigot. Because the moralist is the good person whose only standard of goodness is themselves. And they judge the world based on themselves. He or she sets up the standard of their own goodness and everything else is judged according to to them. That is bigotry. You're not a Seahawks fan? Well, you're just a lesser person. You don't like flannel? What's wrong with you? (laughs) You go to what church? Tut, tut. Jesus says we approve or we disapprove by two things. Very simply, His Word He said, the word which I spoke and His Spirit. Which is what we began with this evening, 1 Corinthians 2.14. The things of the Spirit of God are spiritually appraised. We appraise the world and thereby approve or disapprove of the world based on what the Word teaches us and what His Spirit clearly shows us. And by the way, the Word and the Spirit work absolutely in concert because the Word is His Word. And so the Spirit of God is not going to contradict the Word of God, nor will the Word of God contradict the Spirit of God. So we have the Holy Spirit and we have the Word of God to direct us in approving or disapproving of things in this world. And if someone comes up to me and says, by what right? I say, well, certainly not by my own standard, but by the standard of God's Word. What you're doing here is not right. Or what you're doing here is wonderful by the standard of God's Word. Verse 4, Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Now Paul is describing godly approval. How do you get it? How does one become approved of God? And if you say repentance, I would say you're wrong. Because what precedes repentance? Godly approval kindness don't you understand do you think so lightly he says of the riches of his kindness tolerance and patience not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance the kindness of God nobody comes around to their own goodness nobody just one day has the light bulb goes off oh okay great I'll be a Christian no, it's by understanding the character, the nature, the kindness, the goodness of God. Which is why we talk about Jesus. Which is why if you want to impact a person's life and their understanding, you don't try and, and, and teach them the book of Romans right out of the gate. You talk to them about Jesus. Because it's His goodness that draws them. It's His character that, that gets people's attention. It's His kindness, His love, His mercy, His grace. That's what draws people to the Lord. Godly kindness brings us to His goodness. Now I want you to notice something here. The word kindness here in the Greek is krestos. Not Christos. that's Christ. Krestos is kindness. And it's, it's well translated dynamic goodness. That is, it's goodness at work. It's God's goodness at work. There is a word for goodness. And I noticed this in studying the King James translation. doesn't say the kindness of God leads you to repentance. It says the goodness of God leads you to repentance. And actually kindness is a better translation here. There is another word in the Greek for goodness. It's agathosune. And that describes the intrinsic goodness of God. The innate goodness. It's just who He is. He's just good. Kindness is that goodness in action. It's that goodness at work. So when we read Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Those are two separate words. Kindness, that's goodness in action. And goodness, it's just who He is. Which really thrills me because that means as the fruit of the Spirit is developing in my life, part of what develops in me is the very goodness of God Himself. I start to become good because His own character begins to work its way into and about my heart. The kindness, the outward working of the goodness of God. And in fact, this goodness encompasses three dynamics. And Paul uses three words. His kindness, His tolerance, His patience. All of these things flow out of His goodness. And it's so important to note this. This fourth verse of the second chapter is huge because for the first time since verse 18 that talks about the wrath of God, we start to recognize why He's so angry. Why is He so mad? Why is He so upset? Because His kind heart would that you and I repent would that we turn to him would that we come to him not push him away it angers him like it would anger me as a parent I talked about on sunday if my children push me away that would hurt emotionally it would upset me emotionally i might yes get angry about that don't push me away i'm here for you and suddenly paul says this and it's marvelous the kindness oh the kindness of god His dynamic goodness works to bring people back to His heart, back to Him through repentance. Anyone here like that kind of parental approval? I would wager, and I'm not actually asking for a show of hands now, but I would wager that among us tonight there are several of you who never got it. Who desired it your whole life. Who wished... That you had a father who approved of you. Or a mother who looked at you and said, you're worth something to me. Please understand that you have the unashamed approval of God through Jesus Christ. If He didn't approve, if He didn't love you so much, then why did He die? And if you never got the approval that we all long for, honestly... All of us long for the approval of a parent, a mother, a father, someone in our life, older than us, bringing us up saying, I approve of you, I care for you, you really do matter. Hey, if you didn't get it here, we're all sinners. Get it from the one place where the approval matters, from God Himself, who in His kindness approves. By the way, he he starts out that verse saying, do you think lightly? That's too light a translation. Literally, it's a single word that that is better translated disdain or despise. Do you despise the kindness and the tolerance and the patience of God? Paul says, how can you despise His goodness at work? And there are those, as we continue here, there are those who Paul would say, yes, they despise, they disapprove of, they disdain God's goodness verse 5 but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart and again he's talking to the moralist here he's not talking to the follower of Jesus he's making a case he says because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God You're storing up wrath. The phrase storing up there is literally making deposits, as in a bank. You are depositing daily little portions of wrath. You're investing in wrath, he says. By despising of the approval of God, which is offered to all of us, God's approval, which is real approval, you're making daily investments in the denial of the righteousness of God. It's kind of like playing the futures market. People will do that. Foolishly banking on things that may or may not turn out, but in this case, Paul says, you are banking on God being wrong. And the more you live in denial of Him, and the more you push back against Him, oh, you good person, the more you are investing in your own demise. Just a few years back, North Dakota was booming. You want to get a job in this country where there were no jobs to be found? You could find a job in North Dakota. The oil companies were exploding and investors were pouring money into oil. Today, that is today, January 27th, 2016, today Brent crude oil, which is the standard, is $31.80 a barrel. Do you know how much it costs the United States to make one barrel of oil? $36. Thirty-six dollars. So oil right now is selling for somebody to do the math real quick. Thirty-one eighty as opposed to thirty-six. So thirty-six minus thirty-one eighty is four twenty. Thank you, mathematicians. I'm going to carry the okay. Four dollars and twenty cents lost for every barrel of oil we produce right now in America. It's a losing venture right now. Now, granted, oil is one of those things that goes up and down and and stocks and all that go up and down. But as of today, oil is a losing investment. Paul says, right now, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are investing in wrath. It is a losing investment. Jesus turns around and he offers a much better place to invest. He says, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Matthew chapter 6 verse 20, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus uses the same exact phrase that Paul now uses, storing up. Are you storing up for wrath or are you storing up your treasures in heaven for all eternity? Well, I'm a good person. I don't need God. You're storing up for wrath. Verse 6, the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will, now watch this, render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance in doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation, that's what you're storing up. Some accuse Paul here of teaching works righteousness. And truly, it, it kind of seems like that. What he quotes, it's from Psalm 62. He quotes, uh, God will render to each person according to his deeds. If you just take that verse and pluck it out of context, what you hear is, okay, so it's a good bad thing. So my good deeds need to outweigh my bad deeds, and if my good deeds do, then I can go to heaven. Well, that's Islam. Kind of. I've told you before, Allah can still turn around and cast you into hell even if you're perfect. If he decides to on that particular day. It's no God of mine. Is this works righteousness? Is this, if you do enough good, God will render to you your reward? Let me say very clearly, since the Damascus Road incident, Paul never taught works righteousness. Ever. In all the writings of Paul, if you think he's saying something that, may, that sounds like works righteousness, you are misunderstanding the passage. So let's understand this. Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul is a grace guy. Apostle of grace. So what does he mean... By perseverance in doing good. Okay, watch this. Look at verse 6 again. Who will render to each person according to his deeds. First of all, what Paul does here is quote Psalm 62 verse 12. Let me give you the whole verse that Paul is directing people to when he quotes this. Loving kindness is yours, O Lord. You recompense a man according to his work. The word loving kindness in the Hebrew is chesed which is grace. The verse begins saying, Grace is yours, O Lord, for you recompense a man according to his work. Grace precedes work. Grace needs to precede work. By the way, followers of Jesus, you work because grace came first. You don't work to get grace. I've been saved by His grace, therefore I work because I'm already saved. I'm working in my salvation, I'm working out my salvation with fear and trembling because God chose to save me, therefore I can't help but to serve Him. Grace first, then works. The recompense is always by grace, always has been by grace, and Paul will get into that in chapter 4, talking about the faith of Abraham, who was credited as being a righteous man, though he wasn't any more righteous than you or me. But he believed, and so because he believed, God said, alright, faith in my grace. You got credit, Abe. And when it's all said and done, I will pour out my grace on you by your faith. Paul's entire thesis, remember this, in chapter 1, 2, and half of 3, his entire thesis is, no one can measure up. You can't possibly measure up. So the question is, what does Paul mean when he says by doing good? Halfway through verse 7. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory. What does he mean by doing good? Does he mean works, good things that pull you up by your bootstraps? No. Listen to what Jesus said. John 6.28 What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? The Jewish people said, what are the good works? Tell us what to do and we'll do it. Tell me what the good work is. And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him in whom He sent. That's it. How do you by perseverance do good? You believe in Jesus, you trust in Jesus, and you are doing good. It's the best you can do. Because you can't do enough good on your own to save yourself. So the good that you do is trusting in Jesus the Lord. Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So clarifying this, no, Paul is not saying you work for it. He's saying the good that you do is trusting in the Lord. Doing good is simply being approved of God by faith. Approved of God because I trust in God. By the way, in the book of Romans, Paul will use the phrase, by faith, ten times. By faith, by faith, by faith. And he will double that in a single chapter in a later writing, because I believe he wrote it, the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, 20 times he says, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. 20 times. Think about the context. You students of Scripture, you know what I'm talking about. Hebrews chapter 11 is the hall of the faithful. And beginning near the beginning, it goes through, it lists people, Abraham, Moses, it, it lists all of the faithful people. Even guys like Jephthah. Look him up in the book of Judges. All these people who did all these marvelous, wonderful, great things by faith by faith by faith because without faith it is impossible to please him it is not by works that we are saved it is by faith in his grace and Paul is just explaining this but again he's talking here to the moralist to the so called good person who would pull themselves up by their bootstraps and he's saying "Okay, then you're going to be rendered according to your deeds you can do good, which is trust in the Lord Jesus, and have eternal life. Or, you cannot do good and end up in hell. If you want to be judged by according to your deeds, fine, read Revelation chapter 20. And you'll see what the outcome is for everybody who wants to be judged according to deeds. Verse 9, he says, There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who, and here's the phrase again, does good. What is doing good? It's trusting in Jesus. To everyone who does good, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. Now this is now and later. Evil. Evil is self-distressing right now. You do evil now, it's going to mess you up. Guaranteed. It might seem to be the easier route. It might seem to produce good things right up front. Sneaking around, lying, being deceitful. But it's going to catch up with you and it will become self-distressing. Doing good. Trusting in Jesus brings peace with God and the peace of God right now. But also eternally. Now notice this. It's the first time he's said this since the first chapter To the Jew first and also to the Greek. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. That is either tribulation and distress for doing evil or glory, honor, and peace for doing good. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Remember when Paul first wrote that, he is talking about the what? Okay, go back to chapter 1 and look at verse 16. I am not ashamed of the... The what? The Gospel. gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Everybody. As far as Paul was concerned, there were just two kinds of people in the world, Jews and Greeks. And now a third kind, Christians. Who could be Jewish or they could be Greek. What does this tell us? It tells us there are only two options for people. Two options in all of history. That is judgment by works or salvation by faith in God's grace. Jew or Gentile makes no difference whatsoever. Atheist, moralist, doesn't matter. Doesn't make a difference. We all need Jesus. You cannot be good enough to be saved. By the way, nor can you be bad enough for God not to save you if you will trust in Him and turn your life over to Him. It's by grace. Verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law, now pay close attention because this is tricky. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but it is the doers of the law who will be justified. For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them, on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Everybody got that? That is one of those famous Pauline run-on sentences. You know, he starts writing and you just see Paul getting more and more excited, so he just keeps writing and now I'll get to a period eventually. What is Paul saying here? It, It need not be confusing. Let me just sum this up simply. Paul, by the Spirit, is saying, whether we know the written law of God or not, sin is still sin. To the Jew who knows the law and violates it, it's sin. To the Gentile who is not under the law but violates it, or violates not the law but his understanding of right and wrong, it is sin. Sin is sin, whether you have the Hebrew law telling you it is, or you don't. And there are three key words here that Paul uses. They're all in verse 15. The words are hearts conscience, and thoughts. Listen to the verse. It's talking about the Gentiles who they instinctively know. People, the moralist who does not have the law, the Gentile who does not have the Jewish law. Hey, the work of the law is written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. The heart is the defendant who acts on desire, either desire to do good or desire to do evil, but the, the defendant. The conscience is the judge. Now I'm talking about someone who's not under the law of God, who can't open it up and go, okay, thou shalt not murder, alright, I better not do that, because it says so here. I'm talking about the person who wants to kill someone, they're so angry, but they go, no, I better not. Why not? Because the conscience, as the judge, sits up in the judge's seat, And brings down the gavel. And then the thoughts are the witnesses. They either accuse or excuse the person. Let me say this one more time to make it really clear. The heart is the defendant acting on desire. The conscience is the judge weighing the evidence. And the thoughts are the witnesses who either accuse or excuse a person. So even if you don't have... The Hebrew Scriptures. Even if you don't have the Ten Commandments, the law of God, you still have a sense of what is right and what is wrong. God put it in you. Which is how the world functioned for some, what, 2,000 years before Abraham came along, and then well, ultimately before Moses came along. How did Abraham know what was right or wrong? He didn't have the law. He didn't have anything written down from God. How did he know? Conscience. And God has placed the conscience in every person. Everyone has one. It's that God-given internal sense of right or wrong. It's why the kid with the hand in the cookie jar looks over their shoulder. How do they know? Even if you've never told them, if you take a cookie before dinner time, you're in trouble. <laughs> I remember the, uh, remember the old show, Roseanne. I'll never forget this. this. Is one little scene where the youngest kid comes in and grabs some cookies out of the cookie jar and Roseanne comes in, you know, that, that pillar of domestic life. And she comes in and says, what did I tell you about eating cookies before dinner? And he goes, always use a plate? And she said, that's right. <laughs> Without God's law, the conscience is a law unto itself. That's what Paul is saying. That's what he's explaining here. It's a law unto itself written on the heart. And in fact, the conscience was downloaded the very day Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Suddenly they knew right and wrong. Before that, they didn't. Before that, they were innocent, incapable of doing right or wrong. They just did. They just lived in the garden and ate fruit, and walked around naked, and it was all good. We should be so blessed. Not here, not now. But good and evil suddenly now is attached to the mind of humanity. We can consciously think through what's right and what's wrong. Whether or not we have the law. And God, by the way, did not give the law to develop the conscience. He gave the law to increase sin. As Paul will talk about in chapter 5. The law says, I'll give you an example. The law says, honor mom and dad. Well, I don't need the law to tell me that. I knew as a kid growing up, if I was respectful to my parents, it went better for me. And if I was disrespectful, bad things happened. That's pretty basic, you know? Don't murder. Okay, I, I get that too, because if I murder that guy, well, that guy's brother might murder me, and I don't want to be murdered, so I'm not going to murder. Pretty basic. I don't need the law to tell me that. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie against your neighbor. Don't covet. All those things in Exodus 20. We don't need the law to tell us these things. We know them innately. And again, that's what Paul is explaining in verses 12 through 16. What happens is this. The heart starts to hanker for evil desires. The conscience takes the bench. It calls in our thoughts to witness accordingly. And that's how it works. And you know that's how it works because you probably have those little mental wars in your own brain yeah, I know I probably shouldn't do this, but man, it looks good, but I really know I shouldn't do this. Yeah, but... (laughs) And back and forth, and you're having this, you know, this little miniature schizophrenic break in your own head. And we've all been there, and you're laughing because you've been there, and you know. Or you're laughing because you're like, Rick, you're weird. (laughs) But here's the thing. We can reject the witnesses. We can kick them out of court. We can say, I don't want to hear the witnesses. I want to rationalize the wrongdoing. And by the way, if we do it for too long, the Bible says we literally can sear the conscience. If I shut down the thoughts long enough, then the evil desires of my heart will overcome the judge, my conscience, and my conscience will just sit behind the bench not knowing what is right or what is wrong either way. I just can't tell anymore because I've shut down the conscience for too long. 2 Timothy 4.2 Paul says that. Bible commentator Alvin McLean said God will judge every man by the standard that man actually has not by what he does not have. He will judge the Jew by the written law the Gentile by the law in his heart. If God does that what will happen to man? He will perish. The Jew who by practice cannot keep the law written by God, and the Gentile, who by lifestyle cannot even keep the law written in his own heart. He's going to perish either way. Any moralist can be judged by his own standards, and in that judgment, he will be a lost man. And that's ultimately the point Paul is getting to you. Whether you're under the law or not, you are lost if you think you're good enough. James 4.17 Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, sin. It's sin. But here's the final word on the matter, verse 16. On the day when according to my gospel, and Paul's just saying, according to my declaration of the good news, according to my euangelion, my gospel declaration, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus and we're right back to the standard of approval Christ Jesus the judgment's going to come because all things are going to be approved of or disapproved by Him all things are going to be compared to His righteousness He's the standard can you live up to the standard of Jesus in all His perfection no you can't better to allow Him to take your place 1 Timothy 2.5 There's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. So much for Mr. Goodbar. Bye-bye, Mr. Moralist. He remains in and of Himself unapproved. The only way we come into the approval of God is by faith in Jesus Christ, who perfectly stands in our place. And I'll tell you what, if you share the Gospel like that to friends and family, if you say, I would be absolutely lost if Jesus hadn't taken my place, they're going to be a whole lot more apt to listen. The condemnation does not come from you. You're not saying, be like me. You're saying, Jesus is the issue. And and if you can truly be better than Jesus Christ, fine. But if you know in your heart of hearts that you cannot, let Him be for you. Let Him take Your place. That's what following Jesus means. That's what happens when I trust in Him. He is the standard. So, the atheist, the moralist, and finally number three, and I'm going to move quickly here, the legalist. The legalist, or specifically now the law-abiding Jew. Verse 17. But if you bear the name Jew, and rely upon the law and boast in God and know His will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. You therefore who teach another do you not teach yourself You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. And Paul there quotes directly from the Septuagint. That's the the Greek translation, right? Of the Hebrew Scriptures. He quotes it directly. It's Isaiah 52, verse 5. Which reads, The Lord declares, Those who rule over them howl, and my name is continually blasphemed all day long, Isaiah says, Because of you, Israel. You think you got it all together because you're keeping the law? You are blaspheming the name of God by your inability to keep the law. You're out there in the world and the world knows you can't keep the law. The world knows you're playing tricks and games to get around the law. The world has gotten on the elevator in Jerusalem on Shabbat and wondered why it stops at every single floor. You know why it does? Because they've got to keep Sabbath, and you can't push that button and cause a little spark of electricity because that's work, and you can't work on the Sabbath. Are you kidding me? Now, no offense to my Jewish brothers and sisters. I understand the heart that it comes from. It's a heart that says we have to do everything possible to keep the law, to please God. But Paul says, and you're failing miserably. You're great on the finer points. But on the bigger issues, Jesus said to the Pharisees, not even close. Ezekiel 36 verse 20 says, when they came to the nations where they went, they profaned my holy name. Paul is getting now all over the legalist, the Jew. He's gone after the heathenist. He's gone after the moralist. Who's left? The Jew in the world. And Paul says, you can't do it. Well, Paul's just being a bigot. Again, he's not. Because he's not comparing Israel to himself. He's comparing Israel to the standard of God's Word, the law. And the judgment here, as Jesus said, is by the Word, and Paul is just pointing it out. And there are three things in this last section of chapter 2 that the Jews thought gave them automatic passports to paradise. And the first one is the approval of the law. The approval of the law. As long as we keep the law, and keep it perfectly, then we are in like Flynn. You know where the phrase "in like Flynn" came from? Errol Flynn. Remember the original Robin Hood guy? Apparently, uh, I don't know, molested or raped or did something to some woman and got away with it, and the whole country knew it. And so the phrase was developed: "In like Flynn." He got away with it. Got off scot free. I just thought I'd throw that out there in case you were interested. A little bit of trivia for you it had absolutely nothing to do with tonight's teaching. What Paul's saying is by the approval of the law, you don't have to go far back in the Hebrew scriptures to hear God indict His own people about the law. Read the, the, the minor prophets. The prophet Malachi gives several examples of how God's people are not keeping God's law. He brought a stinging indictment of the people. For example, the law said, Do not steal. And so the Jew would say, Good, I keep the law. And God says, Malachi 3.8, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. And you say, How have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me. The whole nation of you. You don't think I know the games you're playing in not giving what, what was asked of you to give? I know! Adultery. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And yet Jewish men right and left were divorcing their wives for burning the toast so they could be with another woman. It's adultery. Which is why Jesus in Matthew 19 has to come along later and says, listen, except for marital infidelity, speaking of sex outside of marriage, except for that, you don't have any right to divorce Because they were committing adultery right and left. Skirting the law. You're not keeping the law. And the non-Jewish world, again, knows it. Israel, we know. We've seen it. By the way, there is an inherent danger in our being a Bible-loving fellowship. The fact that we love to be in the Word together and open the Word and pour over the Word, we can be, like the Jew, legalists. We can become legalistic. And what I mean by that is bigoted, believing ourselves better because we hear the Word. Looking at the rest of the world, or maybe just the Sunday morning crowd who aren't faithful like you are tonight... (laughs) And we can start to divide and make divisions. And I've heard it. We can say, well, at least our church teaches the Word. That's legalistic. And it's bigotry. And it's taking pride in something that we don't have a right to take pride in. That that, that we're more righteous because we study God's Word. That we're more sanctified because we're studious. That's not how it works. Hey, the Word washes us clean to be sure. And I hope you're here as often as you're here because you love God's Word. You want to be in God's Word and you know it makes a difference in your life. But it does not give us the right then to turn around and say we're better because we are people of the Word. The Word does the washing, not my being a student of it. you understand that? The Word cleanses me. I don't cleanse me. And I'm not cleaner because I have chosen to do this, that, or the other. No, the Word does that, and the Spirit does that. And so James says, Prove yourselves doers of the Word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. And he says this, James one twenty three. If anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. Now get this, For he has looked at himself and gone away and he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. Don't forget what kind of person you were before Jesus got hold of you and saved you by His grace. It's key. I don't forget how lost I was. I don't forget how sin-soaked I was before I began to be soaked by the Word, before I was born again by the Spirit, baptized in the Holy Spirit, and washed clean by His work. As Paul said, such were some of you. I was. And and sometimes it's easy to forget that and to sit up here and go, "Ah, I'm in the Word. We're Bible students. And we are the best of the best, the cream of the crop at the Bridge Christian Fellowship. Well... (laughs) The true doer of the Word does not forget what kind of person he is or she is. By the Word, we trust in the grace and forgiveness of God in Christ Jesus. And that's important, because people say you Christians are hypocrites. And I've told you before, my response is, yes, we are. Yes, I am. I am an imperfect man, which makes me even more thankful for the grace of God. And I will tell you what His Word says and at the same time I will tell you I am not always perfect at keeping it. There are times I slip. There are times I fall on my face. There are times I shut out the witness even of the Word of God and close my ears to the Holy Spirit because I am I am determined to do what I want to do. And I turn around and I say, God, forgive me. The world needs to know that. Well, okay, so there's the approval of the law. I did say quickly, didn't I? The approval of the law. The second thing is the approval of what I would call the litmus test. The approval, the approval of the litmus test, that is circumcision, verse 25. For indeed circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you're a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision so if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision and he who is physically uncircumcised if he keeps the law will he not judge you who though having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law now get this the old rabbis actually wrote no circumcised man would be lost Ladies, you better hide behind them, because I don't know what your in is. <laughs> and in the first century, it was actually said among Jews, there was a saying that went around that Abraham stands at the gates of Hades to be sure no circumcised man ever accidentally fell in. <laughs> Circumcision was a singular mark that many Jews believed would guarantee their salvation. It's the way men think. If I got to go through that, I better be saved. (laughs) The law and the litmus test, and yet Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. Moses said, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. That's the circumcision that matters. Uh, Your physical circumcision, Moses said to the Jewish people, and now Paul is saying, was just emblematic, symbolic. Kind of like baptism is just symbolic, emblematic of the washing God does to the heart. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart. Men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Is it flesh or spirit that matters with God? Is it foreskins or is it clean hearts? And Paul is making the case, Jewish man, if you're depending on the law to save you, if you're depending on the litmus test of circumcision... You are not saved. Jesus said, Matthew 5:8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The law, the litmus test, and finally, the approval of the lineage. The, The lineage, verse 28. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. 2 Corinthians 3.6 tells us, The letter kills. The Spirit gives life. And he says, Your praise is not from men, but from God. In the Hebrew, he might as well have just said your Judah is not from men but from God because the word Judah, the name Judah, means praise. Your praise, Jewish people, does not come from men, which means it does not come from the keeping of the law. It does not come from the litmus test of circumcision and it certainly doesn't come by your lineage. Where does it come from? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 18 again says, it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. This happened with Jesus and the Pharisees. It's from John chapter 8, you can just listen for a second, but Jesus was saying to the Jews who believed in him, John 8:31, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And they answered him and said, We are Abraham's descendants. And have never yet been enslaved to anyone. Okay? Okay? And then he says, they say, how is it that you say we will be free? And Jesus speaks more. He goes on further. He says, I know you're Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. And they said, Abraham is our father. Lineage, man. Jesus says, if you're Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. (laughs) You want to claim that lineage? Claim his behavior, man. You say, we're of Abraham? Then be people of faith. You don't depend on your... Lineage Lineage is not a a lifeline. Get that down. Lineage is not a lifeline. No Baptist will be saved because he or she is a Baptist or mom and dad were anyway. Grandma was. So I'm running on her, you know. Do we we have the the church paperwork, you know, that says grandma was a Baptist because I need to show that to God when I get to heaven. No Catholic... I love the phrase, once a Catholic... Always Catholic? I would change that. I would say, once a Catholic? Not always. (laughs) Once a Bridgeite? Hey, I went to the bridge, Lord, and we really teach the Bible there. The word is clear. No Jew will be saved because he or she is Jewish. No Baptist will be saved because they're a Baptist. No Catholic will be saved because they're Catholic. And no follower of Jesus at the bridge will be saved because they happen to attend the bridge fellowship. That is not how it works. Lineage is not a lifeline. And to underscore this even more clearly, it is not the lineage of Israel that will save Israel. Well, what will? Some think nothing. Some think Israel lost its chance. They're out. If you're Jewish, you're lost, period. Well, the Bible says, Zechariah 12.10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. So they'll look on me, whom they have pierced. Well, who's speaking there? That's Jesus. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Zechariah thirteen nine. God says, "And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested." And they will call on my name; I will answer them. And they will say, "I will say they are my people." And they will say, "The Lord is my God." By the way, like silver is refined and like gold is refined, the word that I was telling you before—that depravity unapproved is the exact word the Greeks used to describe unrefined metals, like silver and gold. If it comes out and it's impure, it's unapproved. And so God says, I will approve you. I'm going to refine you so that you can be approved of God. They are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. And Paul says in Romans 11.26, and so all Israel will be saved. How? How? Because all Israel, the remnant of Israel, will come to faith in Yeshua HaMashiach. The Jews will be saved by faith in Jesus Christ, just like you have been saved by faith in Jesus Christ. That's how salvation works. Works. No one comes to the Father, Jesus says, except through me. The law won't do it. The litmus test of circumcision won't do it. Your lineage won't do it. And by the way, Paul said of his own lineage, Philippians 3.4, If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. You want to talk lineage? Circumcised the eighth day. There it is, the litmus test. Of the nation of Israel, the lineage. Of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. Lineage, litmus, law. I got it all. Paul could have said, I was a standard bearer. He says, as to zeal, I even persecuted the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted loss for the sake of Christ. I would rather have Jesus than the law, than the litmus test, or than the lineage any day. Now, some will read what Paul says here. He is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is that which is of the heart and they use that as support for replacement theology and it's not even close. It's a complete misuse of the Scriptures as we will see very clearly when we get into chapter 3 which we don't have time for tonight. But I want you to listen to the last two verses with a substitution. I'm going to alter them slightly. I don't normally say change the Scriptures and I don't mean to here. But I want to show you a principle and what I think Paul is getting across is he's talking to Israel, to the Jewish people. What might he say if he was talking to us tonight? Verse 28, For he is not a Christian who is one outwardly, nor is baptism that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Christian who is one inwardly, And baptism is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And His praise is not from men, but from God. You see the principle here? The approval is a matter of the heart. And the atheist and the moralist and the legalist are trying to approve of all things by themselves. And that is depravity. However, the approval of God through Jesus Christ results in salvation. So I'll leave you with this question. Whose approval are you seeking?